The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. We're going to start now in Bloemfontein where Dr. Nandi Kutumana surprisingly arrived at the magistrate's court with her face showing. She's normally behind a mask and a hoodie on. None of that today. We're seeing her face. Very interesting expressions that I think she was trying to put on. But I want to take you there now where I'm watching the magistrate speaking to uh, Nandipa as well as some of her co-accused who are in the dock. Remember, there's three others. Magistrate Ntolo Kabisi is speaking to them. I think they need to try and speak about speak rather on why they believe they deserve bail. And of course there should be a plea in all of that. Let's Take a listen. I cannot consult with her, cannot obtain any instructions from her because this courtroom is the courtroom is so congested. As the court is Right. Point taken care of. I will revert back to that issue. Uh, for accused number one. Support, please, is your worship. Yes. Worship, I confirm my appearance on behalf of accused number one and accused number seven. Gahisho <coughs> from Thank you, Mr. Murugi. And for accused number two? No, you are just should be accused. Three, for accused two and five and not before. Yeah, ish. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Matugi. Accused number for accused number three. Thank you, Oshi. Uh, my name is Sutta Homakamidi. I'm from Legal Aid of Africa, not Legal Aid Board, as the court has been saying. Legal Aid South Africa, and I'm appearing on behalf. I confirm my appearance on behalf of Pakistan. Mr. Tsukulom Makamidi. Yes. So what you are hearing there are the different legal representatives for the different accused in the dock, with, along with Dr. Nandipa, now speaking to the magistrate and explaining who they represent. You can hear there one of them saying they're from legal aid, so they're there to help their clients. I'm taking you back to the magistrate's court so you can continue listening to that interaction between the magistrate and the different legal representatives. <coughs> Um, my office is on record for accused number two, as been excused previously, and accused number four. But today, um, I will request that my office withdraw as attorney of record for accused number four. Um, my learned colleague, Mr. Nakamu, is going to come on record. There has already been discussed with the accused person and accused two, and the arrangements were made um, before coming to court today. Um, I believe Mr. Motomu can address the court. Okay, application granted. Mr. Mutong? May it please the court, Your Worship, I confirm that I appear on behalf of accused number four in this matter. Your Worship, I just want to also um, indicate that I am from Machine Mutong Incorporated Atelis. I received instructions on behalf of accused number four. Your Worship, um, to also please on record that. Uh,
Alright, so I'm coming out of that. We will stay with that story. Our reporter, Oren Singh, will bring us an update a little bit later on, on this particular matter. Stay with 702 and Eyewitness News as the proceedings continue. Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. We are staying with court matters, but we turn our attention now to court matters here in Gauteng. We move on now to the issue, or the story rather, of Senzo Meiwe. It is a story that's been with us for a really long time. They are back in trial. Joining me now on this particular matter is Eyewitness News reporter Humuto Mudise. Humuto, this is a story that's always had a story within a story within a story. There's just so many layers to what we are seeing. It's been nine years. The Soccer Stars family remains none the wise as to what actually transpired. But I do think that now with Togozisi Twala, they are getting some insights in the public as well of what actually transpired that night. Definitely, TV. Good afternoon. I think what's happening now in the Pretoria High Court is that as we uh, you know, continue to hear testimony from the people that were present in the house and they were shot, the family and South Africa is able to listen to the version of events, compare the version of events given by each of the people that are in the house and make some sort of a decision. Of course, the ultimate decision will be made by the court. But we have been hearing from Tawazisi Twala, as you saw rightly say, and he's been speaking about the night that Senzo was killed. I think what stuck out for me today is the fact that, you know, according to him, Meiwa was alive and responsive until um, he arrived at the Butulong Hospital. So after he was shot, uh, Twala uh, has echoed the views or the, uh, the, the version given by Dumela Mandala, who was also present, that he was taken to the hospital in his X6 with his girlfriend, Kelly Kumalo, driving. Twala says that, you know, Miwa um, was trying to communicate with them, trying to speak, but you could see that he was in pain. Of course, he'd been shot. And he says that he was responsive until the Butulong Hospital. He's also spoken about how once he was there, um, you know, he was eventually told that since there was no more, and he ran to the room where he was, um, and he found a nurse covering him with a sheet. He says eventually he then uncovered him, but the nurse insisted that he remained covered. And as he was saying this, you know, he hung his head um, very uh, uh, visibly emotional, uh, his jaw pretty tight, feeling uh, his voice lowering at this point as he's speaking about those moments. Uh, so it's been very, very interesting. Now as I've stepped out, we just heard him speak about the, the interaction between Meiwa and, um, or rather Meiwa's uh, wife, Mandisa, and his mistress, Kelly Kumalo. And he says at the point that the wife got to the hospital, what he saw was Mandisa and Kelly comforting each other as they learned of the news of Meiwa's passing. Komoto, is it becoming more and more apparent that Kelly Kumalo will eventually have to take the stand and say something? I mean, people have been asking questions. She's, I think, tried to answer it to the best of her abilities outside of a courtroom. But is it becoming more and more apparent that actually she might have to give a version to the courts as well? Well, I can tell you that she is the woman at the center of all the testimonies, at least two of the testimonies that we've heard from the people that were uh, present in the house. I mean, from how, you know, at some point she's the one that called Senzo back into the house. That's, that's according to him. So it was easy. As they were about to leave. And at that moment when she called Meiwa back into the house together with the others to kind of say goodbye to her mother, a few moments later the perpetrators allegedly um, walked into the house. So she's at the center of that. She's also, she's also at the center of what happens at the hospital. It's very clear that she plays a pivotal role in all of this, especially because of the relationship that she enjoyed with Meiwa. So the state hasn't really come out to officially say that she will be taking the witness stand, 
However, I'm struggling to see how the story will be complete without a voice from her. We know that the others, including her sister, Zandi, is going to take the stand in her state advocate, George Baloy, saying that today. So I do think that at some point, Kelly herself is going to have to come to the court and say exactly what happened on the 26th of October 2014. All right, thank you so much. That's Khomoto Mudisa who's following the Senzo Meiwa murder trial. So at some point, the likelihood is that singer Kelly Kumala will need to go to the court and give her own version of what transpired that evening. The Midday Report. It's day two for former Gauteng Health MEC Kadani Masangu giving testimony at the Life Isitimeni inquest. This is another story where families have been left without answers, still seeking some form of justice. It's a long time coming. It's a story from as far back as 2016. 144 lives lost following them being moved from the Life Isitimeni Center. Eyewitness News reporter Nukukanya Mtambo is keeping an eye on that story. Nukukanya, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. I listened to Kadani Matlangu's testimony yesterday a little bit and she felt like she was pretty much absolving herself of any wrongdoing saying that she as the political head was taking direction from the department head. Is she maintaining that line of defense? Good afternoon, TD. Absolutely. What we are hearing from Kadani Maslang, who's a former health MEC in Gauteng, is that the decision was really made by then Premier David Makora as well as his budget committee. Um, she's maintained that the decision was made as a cost containment exercise by the uh, provincial executive. Uh, and that's something that we've known for, for quite some time now. But the question really has been who made that final decision? And he, she says um, it wasn't her. The shots were being called by the Premier, David Makora, and his budget committee. And that's exactly what she continues to say today. Um, and there were a number of meetings that were undertaken back in 20, between 2014 and 2016 when the contract with Life as Idimeni was finally terminated. And those meetings were highly confidential meetings between the Premier, his office, as well as the Danimaklangu's um, department as well, uh, discussing the mechanisms of the termination of that contract, um, what processes would need to be undertaken, what issues would crop up, and how those issues were being dealt with. And all that she has said today really is that those meetings, um, which they're dealing with the particulars of those meetings today, the minutes of the meetings uh, that they are dealing with now have been redacted. The court has not been privy to some of the contents of that meeting, but she says that uh, she's disputing those minutes that have been submitted into evidence, saying some of the stuff that are um, in the the minutes uh, that's been dealt with now um, aren't particularly correct, and she's called on the court to call on uh, then-Premier David Makura's office to submit the correct documents because the dispute is um, the final decision again, who made that final decision um, during those highly confidential meetings, those closed-door closed meetings back in 2014, 2015, and 2016 in a series of meetings. So she wants the court to ask the Premier's office um, to... Um, you know, disclose the, the contents um, of those meetings so that they're able to pinpoint exactly who, how, when, and why uh, that contract with Life as a Demon mm. was ultimately cancelled. Uh, and there really is some sound CD for the listeners to listen to of her absolving herself, as you aptly put it, of her absolving herself and continuing to point the finger at David Makura and his office. These minutes... Uh, that the uh, council has taken the court through 
there are minutes that there are things that are not reflected in this. And if the court wishes to get the verbatim discussion of what happened in that boardroom on the 15th floor, I think the court has a right to get that information. But this is not accurate. And I will not start lying today about the proceedings of what happened in the Executive Council, particularly relating to this matter. I have that's former health MEC Dr. Tatani Masangu. What do you make of that? Even how long it's taken for her to get to the inquest, right? And then she gets there, she absolves herself of any wrongdoing. She's just a political head who's being led by everybody everywhere. Is that the sense that you're getting? What do you make of her testimony? We have spoken about Dr. Nandipu, Nandipa Makutumana, who is out in the courts in the, in, in Bloemfontein. I watched her. I felt like she was putting on an act. I think at some point it looked like she was trying to faint tears that simply did not come on 702 and cape talk this is the midday report brought to you by nedbank commercial banking specialists to enable your business growth aspirations that's right, you're still listening to the Midday Report. My name is T.D. Madia, standing in for Mandy. When I said earlier, there's a lot of things happening in our courts today. We turn our attention now to Ekuru Leni, where the court is due to sentence the Takani graveyard rapist. Abel Libele was found guilty of four counts of rape, as well as four counts of kidnapping last month. The youngest of his victims, from what I understand, is a seven-year-old. We join now by Eyewitness News' Bernadette Wicks on the line for more on the story. Benedict, thank you so much for joining us. I don't think sentencing has happened as yet, but help us understand how we got to the point. What has the court had to consider in dealing with this matter? All right. As you say, um, sentencing hasn't started yet. There's been some delays, and that's because um, the defense is unwell, so there's different counsel being sent in to stand in, and there's just been a bit of delay around that. But essentially, um, Lebelele um, had pleaded guilty to kidnapping and raping four girls and four women earlier this month. The incidents took place between 2017 and 2019. And what he would do was he would accost these girls and women on their way to and from school and work and drag them into the Tsakane Cemetery and violate them there. Um, and it was around a two-year sort of reign of terror before he was eventually caught. Um, as I say, he did ultimately plead guilty, so now it really comes down to sentencing. Two of the victims, as far as I'm aware, um, were minors, so that means that the minimum prescribed sentence will be life, um, but we'll have to wait and see what the court decides. But I imagine you've spoken to family members in a matter like this. What are their expectations? What are their hopes uh, in terms of what justice will do? In order, well, in order for the courts, what the courts will do in order for them to see justice, rather. Well, I actually did speak to one of the um, survivors last week. Sentencing was supposed to take place last week and then had to be postponed. And while I was at court, I did have a chance to speak to one of the survivors whose story was just absolutely gruesome. And the trauma that she's been through is just absolutely unbelievable. And um, she really said that she hopes that he is thrown into jail for the rest of his life, that he rots in jail. From her point of view, she said to me, he just doesn't deserve to live. All right, thank you so much. That's Benedict Wicks speaking about the Takani graveyard rapist. They are waiting for, there have been some delays, they're waiting for sentencing to take place. The Midday Report.
Turn our attention now to the West Rand. This is also where you'll find Premier Banyaza Lisufi. He's holding a stakeholder engagement with the Gauteng liquor industry, looking at issues of safety in the liquor industry. Eyewitness News journalist Alpha Ramushwana is also there. Alpha, thank you so much for joining us. I imagine safety in and of itself, in terms of crime, particularly with load shedding, was top of the agenda among some of the issues raised. Good afternoon, of course. I mean, one thing that Gauteng Premier Panyazili Sufi has stretched this afternoon is that one of the most, one of the issues that are commonly experienced at taverns and other liquor outlets and trading stores uh, in the province is crime. And of course, this is because, you know, there are no regulations in place and some of these liquor outlets are indeed trading without the necessary documents and the necessary licenses. So what the Gauteng government says it will be doing from today onward is making sure that there is security in and around the areas where there are a number of uh, um, liquor trading outlets or taverns. And what he is saying, uh, the Gauteng Premier, is that he is indeed very concerned that, you know, the the, the Gauteng government and the liquor board take some time to, to, to regulate some of these uh, liquor outlets. But another person who got to speak on this a little bit more was uh, Economic De- Development MEC Tazim Motara, who also stressed the importance you know, of having uh, uh, police visibility in and around the, the liquor outlets and taverns, especially in some of the townships across uh, the province. But let's listen to what Ms. Motara had to say. We have to look at complying with the conditions of licenses but also enforcing the regulations. We also have to look at the environment of uh, monitoring and compliance, but also look at what are some of the avenues and the tools that we can use to be able to report contraventions in the trading environment. We want to bring everybody on board so that we all adhere to principles of responsible trade and responsible and modern consumption. Uh, We need to all of us work together to reduce the harm caused by alcohol abuse, in particular the abuse that is meted out to children and women. Gender-based violence has a direct link um, to the irresponsible consumption of alcohol. We want to completely eradicate the illicit and illegal trade and supply of the liquor I suppose it's one of those issues dealing with the liquor issue where all of us must come together. I mean, I keep thinking about those 16 people who were gunned down at Mdlalose Tavern in Soweto, I think it was last year. So those are some of the issues that we do have to deal with, that they do need to engage and deal with and move past. The Midday Report. All right, I've been harping on and on about what's been happening in the city of Joburg. There was an attempt to elect a new mayor, another mayor. It did not necessarily go well. Um, Speaker Colleen Makubel is saying it seems the councillors are simply not ready. And I think residents are more worried that this is an issue that keeps hanging and hanging and hanging. So we're going to try and make sense of it. Joining me now is political analyst Lukanyo Vanga to help me dissect and make sense of what is actually going on. Lukanyo, thank you so much for joining us. What we are seeing is a city in waiting as a blame game plays itself out in the media space from the different political parties. Uh, good afternoon, CD, and afternoon to the listeners. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, uh, the chaos of coalitions continues, and uh, chief amongst those culprits is the city of Johannesburg, which was seen more instability than any other city post the local government elections in November 2021. Uh, continuing with that chaos, 
uh, yesterday, you saw the aborted effort to elect a new mayor um, in the place of the short-lived stint of Tapelo Ahmad, who was removed from his position, or resigned rather, the position after pressure from opposition parties. Uh, less than three months into that particular role as mayor, and I think that's something that I disagree with, um, you know, the fact that he was not even given three months, uh, less than three months to prove himself in that role. I think it was premature for Action SA to have raised the motion of confidence in Tapelo Ahmad. It just perpetuated the instability in the city of Johannesburg. And I think the residents of the city are worse off as a result of these political actions. Um, these, uh, political players, yeah. I want to speak about the issue that you bring up, saying that it's premature, and the use of motions of no confidence in these metros. But let's speak about the impact on the city of Joburg not having these accounting these are accounting officers in, es- in essence when you have political heads. Because when a mayor falls, so does his executive. The impact of that on a city like Joburg, what could that be? Yes, they are actually executive authorities rather than. Um, accounting authorities, CD, because in their position, they're supposed to drive the strategic direction of the city. They are supposed to be the CEO of that organization, which is, which is the city. And its residents are the beneficiaries of a well-functioning, stable municipality that is able to table its budget and, and, and pass its budget, that is able to have um, executive intervention in some of the challenges that the city faces. In the absence of that executive authority, things really can't move because in some of these uh, very serious decision-making processes, the mayor is the ultimate um, signing authority that needs to approve some of these things. There's no budget that can be passed in the city without the mayor taking that budget before council. So really, the city is left in limbo. The residents are left in limbo. They are deprived of some of the service delivery interventions that would have come from a fully functioning um, uh, mayoral office as well as a fully functioning executive authority. So the impact there is that the the city of Johannesburg and its residents are worse off and are robbed of the opportunity to have service delivery um, uh, given to them, for which they pay for. I mean, their, their rates and municipal fees are not suspended during this process. Mm. Lucanyo, thank you for that correction earlier. Let's speak about the use of motions of no confidence. That becomes almost the first thing that parties seem to lean on when they are unhappy about the state of whatever metros. There needs to be a tightening of the rules. I think political parties speak about legislation quite a lot without necessarily moving as fast enough in order to get to a point of stability around the metros. Why is it so easy for them to just turn to motions of no confidence? But even then, what's the alternative? Because they want to make an argument that there's no alternative. Uh, you can't legislate good leadership. Good leadership is something that must happen uh, from those that are elected to lead. For an example, if you're going to have people that are raising a motion of no confidence in a, in a mayor that has been there for less than three months, that's less than a probation period in normal uh, jobs that people will have. So on what basis, what would be the substantiation of a motion of no confidence in a person that has not even uh, been there uh, a full three months uh, for them to prove themselves in that role? It, it, there couldn't be any, any basis for it. But even if you look at how some of these motions of no confidence are used and some of the spurious um, uh, reasons that are given for the removal of mayors, 
then really something needs to happen. And I think that happens from the electorate side. The fact that the electorate needs to take more uh, interest in how their cities are governed and in how uh, these legislative bodies are governed from local level right up to national level. Because if you're going to try and legislate good uh, political leadership, you're going to fail. They're going to find ways around um, these notions of no confidence and how they can be expedited and brought to the fore. But even when they are brought to the fore, they're still going to remain spurious. So we really need the values-based leadership from our political leaders, and we must, as as, as an electorate, uh, insist on it. And just before I let you go very quickly, what is your take on the ANC's approach? I know you just said you can't legislate good leadership, but there is a conversation where the ANC is trying to have a blanket approach to coalitions, and people are arguing, but you can't have the same rules applying to metros and Gauteng as something of a smaller municipality in Limpopo. Is that misguided on the ANC's part? I, I don't think so. I think it's, it's about time that the, the political parties, including the ANC, um, bring to the fore some sort of guiding principles and values for these coalition agreements that they're going to go into and not have it as a politically expedient manner that is done on an ad hoc basis or pay-as-you-go uh, decision-making process. It, 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 it's not going to assist to ensure the longevity of some of these processes. Uh, the political parties, including the ANC, need to understand what values, what principles, and what set of priorities they are going to put to uh, any negotiation table to ensure that they work with people that are similar-minded, that share the same values, share the same vision. And once that is the, the, the case, you can see that some of these coalitions will be on firmer footing because they'll be grounded more in principle rather than grounded on positions and uh, horse trading, as we've seen happen currently in the city of Johannesburg. And that has resulted in instability. And I don't think that we should, we're should supposed to go down uh, the same road city. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much. That's Luka Nyavanga, political analyst, making sense of what is happening in Joburg. The Midday Report on 702 and Cape Talk. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. See money differently. Remember earlier we spoke to Eyewitness News reporter Komuto Mudisa who's covering the Senzo Mayor murder trial saying that there's a lot of interesting information coming out from Twala's testimony. I think Twala is still in the witness box. I see now State Prosecutor George Baloy is now questioning the evidence that he's put before the court's testimony. Rather, Let's take a listen. Yes, they were in contact with me. Yes, when was that? After local jail. Although I can't remember when, but I know that thereafter I wrote other statements as well. Do you remember how many statements? We are Kumbul with Engagi. Oh, Mr. Kumbul, that's a water. Not more than one, more than two hundred foot. More than one, more than two. Yes, and what happened further? They took me to Johannesburg. I did what they referred to as identity.
Yes, do you remember when that took place? No, I think sometime December. Got a sense of period December. When the community was supposed to be new, it happened in December. It was in December. It was the end of December. I remember that it was about to be New Year. All right, so that is the Senzo Meiwa murder case where the prosecutor is now questioning um, Togozi Zituala's testimony about what happened that fateful night nine years ago. Still no answers. Nine years ago, and we're still trying to piece together what happened to a much-loved soccer star. The Midday Report. Uh, good afternoon, CV. It's Moses here in Timbisa. Uh, in relation to the issue of... Um, uh, Dr. Magudumani, I mean, no amount of uh, tears she can shed there in court will make us feel sorry for her. We have to also take into consideration on what the family of the young man who was killed, how they are feeling also. We have to take their feelings into consideration rather than taking the uh, the feelings of someone who has done such an, a heinous crime. I mean, we will never take her tears, which she wanted to fake, seriously. Thank you. All right, thank you so much for that voice note. There is a lot to be said about what she was doing in the court, her facial expressions that really felt like putting on a show. I always think about Nomi. Do you guys remember? Uh, I can't remember her last name, but the former police officer who was, well, found guilty of killing people for insurance claims. I always think about all the performance that she put up inside court. Somebody sent me a text saying that what their takeaway is from seeing the face of Dr. Nandi Pamakutumana today is her beautiful skin. Like, what is the regime? Remember, I think that is her field. That actually is her actual field. But I also think about Katla Bering's family that doesn't want them to get bail, that is languishing in a lot of pain over what happened. Remember, he's the charred body that was found in that jail cell that they used to do the cover-up with as part of their escape. So thank you for that. I kind of hear your point. Well, the fact that these small parties have a chance and they cannot work together, they are forever jostling and tussling for power and positions. It means that the person who has to be blamed, if there is anyone to be blamed in this conundrum, is the voter. The voter must just make sure that he votes, he or she votes, for the ANC at the next coming elections. It's better to have an ANC government rather than having no government at all. Thank you. Yo, I don't know. It's better to have an ANC government than no government at all. I always make an argument that if you're happy with the status quo, then good for you. If you're not, then you need to do what, what needs to be done. And I think that's what uh, uh, Lukanyo said was saying to us, that voters have to actually play their part in this democracy. It cannot be done the other way around. The Midday Report is brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking on 702 and Cape Talk. NetBank is a licensed FSP and registered credit provider. Today marks the 30th anniversary of World Press Freedom Day. The Press Council of South Africa is launching its Fair Press campaign. Let's find out a little bit more about it. I'm joined now by Tamba Sipotokele. He's a journalist, communication strategist, and member of the Press Council of SA. Tamba, thank you so much for joining us. What is the Fair Press campaign about? Good afternoon, Siri, and good afternoon to the 702 lenders. The Fair Campaign 
is basically relaunching, revamping the not only the logo but the brand and the work of the press council. As you know and understand that our role is to ensure that we foster ethical journalism and we 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 deal with disputes between those uh, readers who have disputes with uh, with newspapers that are, are members of the press council. You know, Tamba, there's been a view over the years that the press council was not necessarily playing its role as robustly as it should. What would be your response to that? I mean, we get a lot of flack. We are trusted by and large, but we do get a lot of flack as members of the fourth estate. And in part is that people believe that the gatekeepers or those who should be paying attention to how we carry ourselves as far as our oaths are concerned are not necessarily doing the job as well as we should, that you're sleeping on the job. What is your view of that? Okay. Firstly, those who are criticizing the press council or the media, they have a right to do so as long as it's within the, the correct confine, uh, confinements. Like, you know, when colleagues fight on social media, especially Twitter, they throw mad at each other, sometimes there's no substance in it. Or when someone wants to raise a complaint, or people, you, I remember Minister who used to call the press council under the Dutch a toothless dog. They might have been right, but none of them, most of them, it was found that they've never even launched a complaint. However, let me, what I like as, as the media is to flip the mirror. If there are criti- criticism that are coming left, right, and center, we have to look, yes, we are human beings, we make mistakes. But are those genuine or not? Most of them are not. I follow you guys on Twitter. I, I, I see how people like uh, uh, Christelle Lewis. In some instances, there's no substance. It's just attack, it's just anger and mistakes, and actually from some people. So, the role of the media, we have to ensure that it is ethical. We ensure that both print, online, and digital media have, fall under one code umbrella so that when we talk about this freedom of, of, of the media, which only is not for, for the media, it's for the society at large, it's for all political parties, it's a free press for everyone in South Africa. And one would say, I pride myself to be living under democracy whereby People have no idea how much we are trolled on social media, Temba. Let's speak about the importance of media, the fourth estate, in upholding democracy. When you look at South Africa's journey, where our role remains really crucial. Can you just share your thoughts on that? One would say that the media played a very pivotal role during the times of apartheid to dismantle the pillars of apartheid, put it down. And it laid the foundation for the democratic dispensation. The media still plays a very critical role in this kind of democracy of us, and it will keep on playing a very important role. So one, we normally say some of us who are media activists, we must stand on the barricades and guard media freedom. What do we mean the last of chamber mm. when they say that? We are saying that when TV transgresses, we should also have that kind of peer review amongst ourselves, not turn our heads or bury our heads in the sand as if you didn't do any mistake that warrants you to be called to order. Sure. So that um, what you saying, we have to get under this, this uh, media freedom with all our lives. Sure, I'm actually going to leave it at that. Thank you so much. We do need to be able to guard and call ourselves out, call each other out when we are in the wrong. Temba, happy Freedom World. No, no, hold on. Happy World Press Freedom Day to you as well. Thank you for that. The Midday Report.
So I have a politics podcast, Politricking with CD Madia. It comes out on Wednesdays. I normally talk to Mandy about the podcast, but she's not here, so I'm going to talk to myself. My guest this week is Electricity Minister Dr. Kosi Nzu Ramokhopa. We spoke about a number of issues. Of course, at the heart of it is load shedding. What can be done and when can it be done? And we also speak about the pressure that is under and, of course, the lack of powers that he continues to have. Please just give me a reaction to just some of these things. The ESCOM board had made a guarantee around an energy availability factor that we get to about 60, you're right? They're on a path towards either is it 71 or 75, whichever one they're trying to get to. But we had run about 58, so they've missed their target in essence. In a situation like that where you're not the primary shareholder, how do we navigate that where the board isn't delivering on commitments it's made. So maybe weigh in on why do you think it's failing to meet the targets? You said it will be, it'll get worse before it gets better. We're definitely feeling like we're going into the worse. Well, um, I mean, uh, to the board's credit, first let me say the following about the board. I think it's a, it's a assembly of men and women who have uh, contributed immensely to the South African economy. I mean, these are people who come with the, uh, Ex- exceptional ca- credentials and pedigree and all that trying to do is just to to lend their skills and expertise to help us to resolve I mean one of uh, the biggest existential problems that is facing the South African economy I mean to the board's credit if you look at the, there's uh, two extraordinary events that have happened which undermine the ability to meet the target of 60 a percent performance on the EAF in the current financial year of 2023. What is that? Three units at the Kusile came down, uh, essentially taking out 2,100 megawatts uh, as a result of uh, the flue gas desulfurization uh, failure, which compromised the, if you like, the, the structural integrity of the chimney at Kusile, and it took out 2,100 megawatts. And then there was a, a issue with regards to uh, Unit 4 in uh, in Midupi, um, which uh, caught fire and can only be returned. The initial timeline was 2025. It has been revised because of uh, uh, some uh, innovation that we introduced on uh, essentially procuring the long lead items earlier than anticipated. If you had to factor those and account for them, or discount them in the energy availability factor, you'll see that they've, uh, they've uh, exceeded their target. But of course, it's an extraordinary event. We have to account for it. And that's why they're at 58%. But uh, the point I'm making is that if you look at the trend line, I think they are on course to achieve that 65% by uh, 2024 and then 70% by 2025. And that adds a significant amount of uh, megawatts. And I, I must say that this is where you begin to see the value of the electricity minister having visited the power stations. Because now I have a first-hand information of uh, what are the reasons for the failure. Otherwise, I will just be in the boardroom and say to ESCOM board, you have failed to meet this target. It must be reprimanded. There must be consequences. But now I've got a better appreciation of what that is. And I've been able to articulate that uh, position to my peers and also to cabinet. And there's an appreciation. That so you're bridging the gap in yes, understanding. To us as the greater public, you're idling. You're waiting to work. You're doing tours of power stations, assessing what others have supposedly assessed before. But you are an idol. Is that an accurate Look at what you're doing? No, not not an accurate one, because I'll tell you what. So first is that we we now have a 
a better appreciation of the technical challenges uh, at the various power from stations. From your tour of the power stations. From the visits to the power stations. All right, that's a little bit of my conversation on politicking with C.D. Madia with Dr. Josientu Sputla Ramohopa, who has no powers and who believes that political interests should not be what drives them to, to sort out the electricity problem. Remember, ESCOM has been cited as a major risk for the ANC. So we'll see how this picture unfolds and whether or not he'll eventually get his powers. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.